guys, let's come on in. Take a seat. Quit talking already. My goodness. You think we're like a family or something? <laughs> um, my name is Nick. I'm one of the the elders here. Um, bringing you God's word. So thanks for being here. If I haven't met you, um, I'd love to afterwards. Before I even get going, if I could uh, have the ushers maybe pass out Bibles, that'd be great. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you, can keep, you can keep this one. Please raise your hands. Let them know you need one. Um, if you want to give it away to a neighbor, a little early Christmas gift, that, that would be great too. And I'll, I'll say, just to kind of add to the, the testimonies there, um, been encouraged. I'm always excited to see the church being the church, and um, looking like looking like Jesus, looking like the cross, giving joyfully uh, to those in need, uh, even to the point where it hurts. And um, it's just awesome. A number of things come to my mind, but uh, one thing: last week we did a, a benevolence offering, right, for um, Teen Challenge and and for Morocco, right. Yeah, or was it Teen Challenge? Yeah. yeah. And, and there must have been, I, I think Jerry said like 70 adults in here or something. We brought over $7,000 for that. You guys, it's, it's incredible just to think about. I was like, wow, no way. And then, you know, this week, some of you who are on the um, in our directory and you get the, the, the weekly mailer that we send out, a special announcement I think was made for... Um, a brother needed, uh, you know, perhaps some leads on a car, or some help fixing his car, or whatever. He, uh, car kind of broke down. So somebody in our fellowship, I'm not gonna name any names, but it's just it's amazing to me. Said, okay, uh, we have a car, you can have it. I was like, what in the world? This is incredible, you know, just to see uh, the church being the church, um, being there, bearing one another's burdens. Um, Given to one another, and, and even on a more personal note, it's awesome. I, I can resonate with some of the testimonies you guys were sharing about how you know prayer and and, and God just coming and moving. Um, I I, w- I had an elders meeting, Ian and Jerry and I, on uh, Friday night, and I, I was just sharing with you guys like. I, I hate to say it, but I I like am struggling with anxiety on a regular basis. You know, just like oppressive kind of, I don't want to say oppressive because I actually think it's probably more a result of my own sin than it is something outside of me. But um, I just feel it, you know, regarding ministry and regarding what am I doing and how, where do I go with this and how do I possibly oversee these people or help these things and, and move this stuff forward. And this is, I need your prayer, guys. I, I'm not doing that well. And I kid you not, I... Uh, to be honest with you, I almost didn't expect that much to happen, you know. But I like, woke up Saturday morning, and, and I, so I guess that was yesterday, and I was just like, no way. I feel completely different. It's one of those things where it's subjective, you know. You can't give this reason, and oh, I did this step and that step, and then all this. So it's like people could look in and go, oh, you probably just got a good night's sleep, young man, or whatever, you know. But it's like, I was sitting there going, no way. I mean, God... 
he just moves and he softened my heart. And, and the same stuff that I was going, Lord, it's not even lighting up for me at all. I have to preach on this and I'm, I don't even feel it. All of a sudden, just light, it just starts to glow, you know? And your heart just softens. Just think to myself, man, we cannot, we cannot get away from the essentials. Just his word and prayer. Just prayer, just crying out for him because we need his spirit. And you can't just make this thing, you know, something that we can manage. We really need him to, to, to come and fall. And I hope, I, I ask, can you guys pray for this church? Pray that God would meet us here. He would fall in this place. And in our hearts, I mean, it, it is a supernatural thing. See, people broken open before God in the best of ways, you know, like that jar that that woman breaks open and just gives to the, you know, the Lord before his, um, before his crucifixion. I just, that's what I want here. And I just, I was encouraged. So thanks for your prayers. Let's keep, let's keep it going. Um, it's Christmas time, right? And um, I wanted to ask, what is uh, Christmas? Some of this might might feel a little redundant to you guys. Um, you probably hear this a lot, but I thought it would be a good way to start. Um, I suppose officially Advent began last week, um, and we're going to kind of get ourselves into the spirit, if you will, uh, here this morning. And I want to ask, what is Christmas, do you think, here in America, to the average American? What is it? I mean, you could think of a number of things. It's amazing. Christmas seriously has its own culture. It really does. Its own subculture. It's got its music. It's got its food. It's got its, you know, activities. It's got, it's crazy. And I, to be honest, I love it. I love the Christmas trees. Some people might think of that. People think of the cookies. People think of the, the peppermint drinks at Starbucks. People think of Black Friday. People think of, uh, I don't know, what else is Christmas to you? I, for, here's one thing for me I'll throw out there. Polar Express. I've been reading that with my family Christmas Eve in my parents' bed. We still, if I'm home, will get in my parents' bed and read it by flashlight. I've been reading that since my copy that I have. It says, it's like when I was five. I still have the book. Uh, we would read that. So Christmas, we have all these memories and all these things what, that we might think Christmas could be. And if you're in this room, I'm assuming you're aware that while all those things can be a lot of fun and, and all that stuff, and I enjoy a lot of it, none of it, none of it is Christmas, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Christmas is Christ. It's about the Christ. Without Christ, you cannot have Christmas. And that should seem obvious to us, and yet all around our city, our nation, our world, people are going to be celebrating Christmas without the Christ. And I think it's one of those things where once you add all these other symbols, activities, once the marketers get on board and, and consumerism starts to elbow in, suddenly Christmas becomes Xmas, becomes holiday. I heard Josh saying that, that that's how his work wants them to call it, holiday. And suddenly Christ is just gone. And within a generation or two, kids are celebrating, you know, Santa Claus and all this. They don't even know what the point is. They don't even know what the point is. 
we perceptive believers kind of catch on to this in the culture and we we can start to get all heated and incensed right we start to look at look at what they did with christmas look at america this place is all falling apart and then you get you get you get the christians that 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 um you got, I, this is actually a prop. You're going, why is he bringing his coffee up there? You get the Christians that, you know, if you have Facebook news or whatever, that are saying, oh, look at this. We're going to boycott Starbucks because there's no, there's no ferns or whatever on it. There's no signs of Christmas. I'm not going to sip my half-calf soy vanilla latte from this. Right? We get all incensed and worked up. Christ is supposed to be the center, but in the middle of all that, I wonder if we realize that sort of movement from Christ to all these other marginal things that start to replace Him, that same movement can be at work in our own hearts. It's not just out there, it's in here. We kind of talked about that a couple weeks ago with the drift of doubt and how you can start with something so great, right? You start your Christian life and you're just focused in on Him. You're just amazed by Him. And then, slowly, Before you know it, you might still be doing all this stuff in his name, but he's no longer at the center of it. I'm telling you, this has been for real for me, and that's where I was, what I was kind of alluding to in the beginning with, you know, where I've been at with anxiety. Suddenly, while I got into ministry, because it's all about Jesus, and I was amazed with him, it can slowly, subtly become about, I got to read all the books so I can feel like I know stuff. I gotta do these meetings and get these emails out and meet with these people and make sure I'm, you know, learning songs for when I lead some worship or whatever it is. And it becomes about all this stuff out here, the additives, the extras, instead, and, and those things start to replace what it's all about. And so it seems to me Christmas is a great time for us to reflect on this. He might be at the center of our nativities, but is He at the center of our lives, our hearts? Whether you're a secular non-Christian or you've been a Christian your whole life, we're all in desperate need of Christmas and the Christ who is the center of it. And so these next few messages as we get ready for... um, you know, just to remember the incarnation, the glory of Christmas. Um, I'm praying that these messages will serve that end for you. Help us center back in on Him. Love God. Love His sovereignty. Uh, I knew when I began the Gospel of Luke we might be in uh, somewhere near Jesus' birth. I figured somewhere around there in the first couple chapters. I didn't know we'd be sitting right here uh, Come, you know, the beginning of December. So this is really neat. If you could open up your Bibles to Luke 1, 26. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, in your New Testament, chapter 1, verse 26. This is the text people all around the world are going to read for Christmas anyways. We just happen to be there as we're going through Luke, so it's great. I'm going to read this, we'll pray, and we'll, we'll get in. Luke 1, verse 26, we'll read down to verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was 
sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, and oh, that we would say these words today. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the fresh reminder yesterday we could do all the Christian stuff. We could read all the books. But without your Spirit, we're just banging our head against the wall. It's your Spirit that comes in and brings your words to life. Opens up our hearts. Softens the hard places. Heals the wounds. And helps us to see. Jesus, I'm, I'm freshly aware and that I can't do anything here. I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would awaken us, would meet with us, would come back in and occupy the center of our lives. You alone are worthy, God. And pray that you would use this time we have to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Um, okay, before we start taking this text bit by bit, there's a, there's a broader ob- observation that I, I want to make. And I, I actually don't know if you noticed it or not. I, I don't think I would have noticed it um, had I not heard another pastor mention it. It's awesome. But it's the Trinity in our text, our our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are making an appearance there in our text. They are all at work. Every person of the Godhead is accounted for, all three of them. I wonder if you see it. You see the Father, right, sending Gabriel to Mary with an announcement. Because you see it there in verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. But then, this announcement 
that comes from Gabriel from the Father is about Jesus, who we read in verse 32 will be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. So you got the Father, now you've got the Son. And later in verse 35, he's also called the Son of God. And how will Mary conceive this Son of God? But by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 35a. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit (laughs) all have to work on Christmas Day. (laughs) You guys hope and pray that you get off and your, your bosses hopefully are merciful. The Holy Spirit... Son, Father, putting in overtime on that day. Made me think of Psalm 121 for soaking this. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He don't have a day off. He's too busy keeping us, working for our redemption, right? He's busy putting in overtime Christmas Day. All three of them. Sorry, guys. I noticed that I got to keep drinking here. I'm sorry about that. Now, the triune activity that we see at the commencement of Christ's advent actually recalls the same triune activity of God at the commencement of creation. Christmas, as it turns out, cannot be properly understood without considering it in light of the original creation. Okay, so I, I want to do this here for a moment with you. This is going to kind of set the tone for where we're going with Christmas. Creation in Genesis is pictured as kind of this overflow of joy, right? Between the, the three persons of, of the Trinity. It's almost like you got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from all eternity. They're there, they are, it's, they're, they're brimming with being and joy, and, 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 and creation is when that, that brimming starts to overflow, starts to spill over. So they have always been mutually enjoying one another. And then as that joy starts to spill over because it cannot be contained, we call it creation. The Trinity is hard to understand, um, get our minds around. But I I came across something in Tim Keller's book, King's Cross. And he quotes C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Plantiga on this. And I think it's very helpful. I want to read it to you. In the words of C.S. Lewis, Keller writes, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Theologian Cornelius Plantiga develops this further, noting that the Bible says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. So, 
borrowing then this powerful image from Lewis, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in this kind of dance of joy. I love that image. Just this dance that the three persons are doing with one another. In the joy of that dance, the overflow of it, creation. Creation. You got the Father leading, right? In the first day of creation. You got the Son proceeding from the Father as the Word, the Logos, right? John 1 1. And then you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, bringing to fruition all that God the Father and the Son uh, command. And then when you consider the seven days of creation, there's almost this kind of cadence to it, right? I've looked at this in the past. It's this kind of rhythm to it. It's almost like he set the seven days to music. Because as he's creating things, there's this constant refrain, right? And he saw that it was very good. And he saw that it, or, that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And at the end, he saw that it was very good. This kind of musical feel to these days of creation. I think that just aids in a scene. It's this joyful dance that's overflowing as the Trinity is at work. And here's the most amazing thing to me. Humanity isn't merely some kind of overflow that's kind of flowing out there somewhere and he's just spilling out with more and whatever. It's not some overflow of joy merely. We're actually called, we're actually created to be brought back into that joy, to enter into that dance with them. It's as if the triune God in those days of creation is laying out the floor, setting up the lights, turning on the music, and inviting us to dance. That's why we were created. That's why we are here. Do you know that? And we know where the story goes. Adam and Eve are happy to dance for a moment, it would seem. They're feeling the rhythm, and then suddenly, in an act of utter rebellion, done. You step out mid-dance. Just leave. If you've ever been to a high school dance, you know that is probably your biggest nightmare. (laughs) Have someone go, you know what? I'm not feeling the music, and I'm not feeling you. You keep stepping on my toes, God. You're crimping my style. I'm out of here. And we leave the Trinitarian dance mid-song. And walk on out into a world of darkness. Now, Christmas. Christmas then, understood against the creation and fall, is best described by a single word. Rescue. Rescue. It's as if, it's as if the Father, Son, and Spirit are not willing. I'm just pursuing. They're not willing to let us walk out on this. You were created for us. Get back 
in here. Christmas is, before it is anything else, a rescue mission. By the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit coming after sinners like us. Get back into the dance, right? Perhaps that's why even in Luke 1 and 2, as people start to get this, as the Father, Son, and Spirit start bringing people back into this work of now redemption, people just start erupting in song. There's music to it. There's music to our salvation. It's incredible. Now, Christmas is rescue. This is the reason why I'm titling our, our messages through this section of Luke for these next probably three weeks. Leading, our, our, leading us up to Christmas and things. I'm titling them, We Wish You a Merry Rescue. We wish you a merry rescue. The advent of Christ and the rescue of sinners. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to move from verse 26. Maybe we'll get to the fringes of verse 31 or so. Uh, we're going to make note of two things. An ancient hope, you should see it there on your handout, and a bipolar fulfillment. An ancient hope, where we begin here. Our text represents the climaxing fulfillment of an ancient hope. Now, there's some scholarly debate on this, but it seems clear to me that while every stream of the, the Old Testament is now flowing into this single moment of the Messiah's birth, right? and we're talking every stream. I've done, I've done work to try to show you that, and we'll continue to do that probably next week in these. Every stream flowing into this moment the whole anticipation of the Old Testament is now coming into uh, fruition. While that's true, every stream flowing, it would seem to me quite clear that Luke has behind his presentation um, one kind of controlling prophetic word. Or prophetic, um, what did I put here? Source, perhaps better. And it's the source that Matthew makes explicit in Matthew 1.23 and then later in 4.14-16. It's a prophecy that if you've been around for Christmas services, you're probably well aware of it. It comes from Isaiah. It's regarding this sign child, namely Emmanuel. And, and, and the context then, the source, if you will, the background for what we're going to see in Luke here is more or less found in Isaiah chapter 6 through 12. Kind of dealing with this sign child, Emmanuel, this, this one who's going to come. The rescuer. The promised child. Isaiah's talking about it. And Luke is now saying, that child, that ancient hope, now here. Today. Coming. I'm going to show you four clues in our text that point me to this conclusion and then we're going to spend a moment considering the prophecies in Isaiah uh, before returning to a deeper anal- analysis of our text in Luke. That's pretty much all we got for today. I'm going to give you some clues that, that connect us back to uh, Emmanuel from Luke. And or for, to Isaiah from, from Luke. Clue number one, Galilee. Galilee. Do you see it there in verse 26 of Luke 1? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee. 
Now, Galilee shows up only a handful of times in the Old Testament, and the most significant is Isaiah 9.1. Galilee is going to be the first place to experience the glorious dawn of this coming child. We'll read these, some of these texts in a moment from Isaiah, but just so you know, I want you to see these clues that I'm drawing from to connect us back to, to Isaiah 6 through 12. Galilee. Second clue. Virgin. Virgin. Gabriel is sent in verse 27, we see, to a virgin. And then later on in verse 31, this virgin will conceive and bear a son. This is a direct correlation with Isaiah 7, 14, which says this, the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son. Call his name Emmanuel. So there's this virgin conceiving a son. Clue number three, David. If you see it in our text there in verse 27 again, this virgin was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This is not a passing detail. (laughs) David represented the last smoldering hope of the people of Israel. And it's as if God is coming in now in this moment and just blowing on those coals and they're coming back into flame. Joseph was of the house of David. These prophecies made about Emmanuel, about this child, are made to the house of David, we see in Isaiah 7.13. And this child is going to sit on the throne of David, we see Isaiah 9.7. Clue number four, the Lord is with you. Verse 28, Gabriel meets Mary, and he greets her with these words, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And perhaps in some sense a standard greeting, I couldn't help but think about the meaning of Emmanuel in the first place, which Matthew tells us, and many of us are familiar with, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's coming near, you guys. And he's doing it along the contours of this ancient hope that we find in Isaiah. So here's what I want to do. All these clues are linking us back there to this child, this coming child. Before I read a few of the prominent verses, what I want to note is the context of their delivery. And to be honest, there's more there than we're going to be able to discuss that is a little bit confusing. Often there are various layers to prophetic oracles and how they're fulfilled. But what I want to see, first of all, is what's even happening in the context of these prophecies in Isaiah. Because it's going to set us up to understand them more fully when we read them in a moment. Prophecies are being made by Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah, in the line of David. You might know who Isaiah was as a prophet, but I don't think you'll know who Ahaz was. And so what I want to do is follow his story just for a moment. Because here's what we see as we start to read. It's basically all through um, his story fills up Second Chronicles 28. But what we see as we look at his story is it's just a, a more detailed replay of what happened with Adam. I don't want to dance with you, Yahweh. 
God, Creator, Redeemer, I don't want to. I don't like the music. I don't like you. I'm going to find other partners who fit the flow of my heart better. Just watch it play out. And it will help us as we ask ourselves, where's Christ for us? And we'll rise um, to see that sun after we're done. Ahaz is introduced, Second uh, Chronicles 28, verse 1 through 4. We're going to read. Listen to this guy. He he is a desperate and despicable dude. He's not he's not doing well. You do not you do not want to be like Ahaz. Here he is. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Note that David is always the standard. He didn't do what David did. But, verse 2, he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This guy is horrible. You see this? He is moving from Yahweh full speed. Currently, what he's after is the Baals or the gods of the Canaanites. The gods of the people, they were supposed to get out of the holy land and devote it to Yahweh. He's bringing that back in. And he's got altars under every tree. He's doing everything he can to worship everything else other than the true and living God. And he's even willing to sacrifice every possible thing you could imagine, even his own children. The valley of Hinnom becomes Gehenna, becomes Jesus' metaphor for hell, where the fires would burn over the trash in their city. He's putting his sons to the knife of the fire there to please these gods. And we say, okay, I, I've never... Um, I've never thought about sacrificing my children to Baal, to some storm god or whatever. But have I neglected them for the sake of something I think is going to bring me satisfaction? Like, say, my job? Have I been thinking that glory and life and joy is going to be found when everybody in the church likes me and thinks I'm wonderful. And so I'm sorry, kids. Daddy's got to work late tonight again. We might not go to the extreme that we see Ahaz going to, but that sort of stuff can happen. Work. Whatever it might be for you, TV, whatever it is, pipe down, little ones. Mama's watching her soaps. <laughs> the story moves on with Ahaz, and it gets worse. Ahaz's kingdom is under attack. Rather than trust the Lord, he looks to Assyria. Rather than come to Yahweh, 
believe in him. He can deliver him. He looks to Assyria. He even gives gold and silver from the temple to the king of Assyria in an attempt to get his protection. Come and help. Here's gold. Here's silver from Yahweh's house. That's how much he's just abandoned the Lord in his heart. And here's what it says in verse 20 of Second Chronicles 28. The king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Because of his sin and his turning to these idols and these other false hopes, it don't actually bring in help. It afflicts him further. And here's where we get to that reality that our idols and the things we hope in other than God actually make the problems worse, right? The more we lean in on them, whatever it may be, the more we fall. And he keeps falling. He keeps falling. As we look, it gets lower and lower. Verse 22 now. In the time of his distress, this is Ahaz again, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. Doesn't get it. He doesn't turn. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus now that had defeated him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel, we read. So he's going from the Baals to Assyria. They don't help. I'll go to the gods of the Syrians, of Damascus. I'll try other gods. They seem to work for them because they won the war. This is where you start to get the insanity of our idolatry, where we realize one thing doesn't work, but we don't stop there and turn back to God. We keep looking for something else. I know I'm broken. Okay, I get that. So what can put me back together? Well, that seems to be working for them. What's working out there? Okay, I'm looking and I'm thinking, money seems to to, to fix things for that guy. Let's go after money. Or exercise seems to work for her. Look at how beautiful she is. And she's got all these guys. I'll try one more exercise routine, whatever it might be. We're just looking, put me back together, and we fall further and further away. What God spoke to Ahaz still proves true today. This is Isaiah 7, 9. Again, this this prophecy is directed to King Ahaz. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Did you hear that? Ahaz, if you will not turn to me, Church, if you will not turn to the living God, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Even though you're seeking stability, that's all Ahaz is doing. Give me protection and stability. Even though you're pursuing that, if you're not pursuing it from the one you were created for, you will not find it. You will only find shifting sand beneath your feet. It's as if we're just trying to find another partner that will dance with us on our terms. Will you dance with me? Will you dance? You're beautiful. Will you dance with me? But as we did with God, 
So these idols do with us. They just walk out on us mid-dance and leave us alone and ashamed. Your idols don't love you. They will exploit you and leave you the worse for it. Now, I mean, you know, I'm always on this movement to take us down for a moment, let us think, but then see the glory of this, this gospel that saves sinners like us. So don't be discouraged. Hold on. Christmas is here. Because <laughs> all the while, God is still calling. And even more than that, God is coming. That is Christmas. That is the rescue. This gift is going to come wrapped in swaddling clothes. God delivers this promise now to that king. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. God with us. In righteous judgment, all of Israel, we read, if you, if you look at the prophecies there in Isaiah 6-12, all of Israel is going to be reduced to this tiny remnant It's likened to a stump after the tree and all of its branches have been felled. Just this stump. Righteous judgment, God's taken them out. That's the exile. It's going to happen. But, but, in glorious, amazing grace, from that stump, something green is going to sprout. One from the tribe of Jesse. One of... David, a shoot's going to come forth. Isaiah 11, 1, a child, a Savior. We see this child's mission put clearly in Isaiah 9. Turn there, if you can. We're not going to, I'm just going to read it, but I want you to see it. Isaiah 9, 1. Let me read this to you. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, those are just the northern regions of Israel, okay? But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee is again just another way for the northern region of, 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 of the promised land. Verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. When you read Isaiah 8, you know that these people are in darkness because they left Him. They left God. And He comes in Isaiah 9 and says, gloom is not going to be the end. On you, a light is going to shine. And I'm going to take that remnant and multiply. Make it fruitful. I'm going to take the exile and I'm going to bring in restoration and new life. And all of this is ultimately predicated upon this child who's coming. And you see it there in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son 
is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, and he will do it through this child here's the one who can rescue us here's the one who can lead us back out onto the dance floor where the music will never end and the partner never leaves it's Jesus Christ now as we return to Luke we see the, the advent of this promised child on the horizon, right? And, I mean, it's Christmas time. So we sing, we sing, joy to the world, right? But how's that song go? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We say, yes, amen. That child here now, everlasting kingdom, I love this. Bring him here. We say, yes. Where is he? Start to see, start to read the gospel, start to watch it. You read closely, you go, really? (laughs) That's him? We're talking about a baby born in an animal trough? Where the first invites to this party weren't of the royal court, they were shepherds? Little poor peasant girl? Really? The angels are singing joy and glory and it's about this? This is the child? I watched um, San Andreas with my family over Thanksgiving. (laughs) I, I don't know. It wasn't that great of a movie, but nonetheless, that rock guy, you know, Dwayne Johnson... When we think of someone who can rescue us, that's what we're thinking. It means there's a scene where his daughter's like trapped in the water. I will not lose you. And he goes, he's using his head or his fist, whatever, breaking through glass and doors underwater and bringing her out and, uh, you know, resuscitate her, bringing life. With that's, I mean, even I would feel safe in his arms. <laughs> right? Yes. Okay. And we, we look for him. We say, where is he at? Where's the the muscle and the strength? You see, this one who's going to rescue us isn't going to rescue us with his biceps. He's going to rescue us with his wounds. Get that? He's going to die for us. That's his strength. Restraining the infinite power he has in submission to the will of the Father so that he could die for sinners like you and me. That's his strength. And Johnson has nothing on my Messiah. There's this confusion as we read Luke's Gospel. Well, there's enough in this narrative to convince us God is wonderfully at work. We also get this sense that He's at work in a way no one expected. As we read, we're left wondering, am I, am I looking at glory here or shame? 
Am I looking at strength or weakness? Am I looking at joy or sorrow? Am I looking at a king or am I looking at a slave? The answer to all those questions is yes. Both and. You see, even at the incarnation, the shadow of the cross is coming over our Savior like fog as it rolls over the bay. Even there, there is glory, there is bright light, there is also shadow. An indication of what this child would have to do if he were, in fact, to rescue us and bring us back in to the dance. Let me revisit those four clues with you for a moment. I want to show you why I call it a bipolar fulfillment. There's two poles to this. can't figure out what it is. Glory or shame. Power or weakness. Death or life. Both. And our four clues actually point us there as well. We'll just look at this. Galilee. Let's look at that again for a moment. Galilee would come like a sunrise. Or I'm sorry, uh, the, su- the child would come like a sunrise to Galilee. Galilee was the place where not only was, was, was the Messiah raised, but where he would, he would first step out in public ministry, as we'll see in Luke's Gospel. So he's coming like the sun to this city of sinners. But... Even in our text here in Luke, there's this indication of an eclipse, the shadow, the cross. I wonder if you notice this. Luke records an extra detail for us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He said, Nazareth? Why, why Nazareth? Isn't Galilee enough? You see... Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It doesn't show up. Why not stop it at Galilee? Why Nazareth? And when we do some research, we realize that Nazareth was a small, unimportant, agrarian little town. And actually, one commentator mentions the region may be uh, mentioned here by Luke because Nazareth was a small, was a very small village, and Luke's readers may not have even known its general location. I don't know where this place is. Small, unimportant, unsignificant. Uh, Nazareth, where is that? But we could go even further because we get a hint in the Gospel of John that this place was also perhaps despised. Do you remember when, when Philip comes to Nathaniel and this is what he says, this is John 1.45, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I know now, Nathaniel knew Nazareth. He said, I know Nazareth, nothing good's coming out of there. And you're telling me that this, this one promise, this ancient hope is now in Nazareth? Nothing good there. Nobody wanted to live there. Nothing desirable about it. No prophecies concerning it. And yet, Jesus is of Nazareth. And I thought to myself, what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean? What, is, what does Nazareth mean? Just for a moment. Humor me. What does Nazareth mean for us? It means 
that Christ is not afraid to come in to our shame. To come in to our places of weakness. To come in to our brokenness, our sin, our suffering. To get low, to get His hands dirty. He's not ashamed of calling me friend. He's not worried about being identified with a sinner, a lowly, weak, pathetic sinner like me. In fact, that's why He came. And you look at all the people He hangs out with and how the religious leaders are just disgusted. They almost throw up in their mouths as they watch Him in His ministry, hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And the crippled and the lame and the leprous. God's judgments upon some of these people. What is He doing with these people? what he came to do. He'd work in the rescue here. This is Christmas. This is Christmas. Not, I mean, some of you need to hear that. He is not ashamed to be associated with you. Your, your weakness, your lowliness, your sin is nothing to him. He came to be with you in that. That's what Nazareth, I think, means. A virgin. Second clue. A virgin. We see the bright glory of this fact that he was born of a virgin, right? You can see the, the wonder of God at work, like I said. There's going to be this bipolar element to it. I mean, virgin birth, utterly unique. The miraculous birth of Christ, in some sense, connects him to the, the miraculous births of old, right? Because he's kind of the fulfillment in that line, from the patriarchs to guys like uh, Samuel and Samson and others, and then John the Baptist uh, most recently. But the virgin birth sets him apart entirely. In all those other cases, God just kind of rejuvenates uh, a barren couple and brings a child from what could otherwise seem like a natural process. Christ, he would come. God himself would conceive this child. That's why he's the son of God. Utterly unique, set apart, holy, none other like Him. But, it's this fact of the virgin birth that also puts Him and His whole family into scandal. So there's this glory to it, but then there's this shame on the other side of it. Right? It's this shadow that crawls over this glory. Because... Mary is betrothed, not married yet, to Joseph. Why does God do it then? No one would think about it if they were married when the child came. What's going on? Not only is Jesus going to be set apart and holy, He is also going to be scandalized. He's going to bear the brunt of our sin. Remember when Joseph sees this? He thinks, oh my gosh, Mary's committed adultery on me. i got to divorce her quietly. i got to get... This ain't going to work. There's this scandal already at the beginning that's foreshadowing where this son would go to the cross to bear our shame. He would wear it even though he was holy and completely unique, utterly set apart. David, the third clue we looked at. Like I said, David's house was the last dwindling hope for the people of Israel. All is reduced to a stump, and then suddenly that stump begins to sprout. And there are people so excited about this that they're ready to make him king almost immediately. Just said, no, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. The only way this king is going to get to the throne is by way of the cross. 
And when we think of David's life, right, we did this in weeks past. I'm not going to spend any time here. But even there, we get a sense of it. God was showing us in who David was, what the Christ would be like. And David, right, remember when he's, when he's first anointed? Nobody even notices him. Everyone's looking over him. Oh, you mean the shepherd boy? Oh, okay, we'll bring him out. He's the one. And then his whole ministry, or, or the beginning of his, of his kingship, right, is actually in conflict with the other king, Saul, who wants to kill him. And it's not until he's overcome Saul, through mercy, by the way, not through killing him, that he ascends the throne in Jerusalem. This is going to be Christ. I mean, he enters in while it's all glorious. The promise to David, that king, is here. It's also going to be shame. He enters the world as king into a kingdom conflict with the enemy, with the devil. Which is why he's not even, he's not even like two years old and Herod's already coming at his throat. Kill all the babies two years and younger. I want this baby here. And Jesus and his family are just on the run. Right? So you've got glory. You've got shame. He's going to have to die, this one. Finally, this is where we end. The Lord is with you. That was my fourth clue. I want to look at that for a moment and see the bipolar fulfillment. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the great movement of Christmas, of all of this, is I want to be near you. I want to be with you. God has not given up. He's still in pursuit. I want to get you back into the dance. And so he announces to Mary, the Lord is with you. And this is a wonderful thing. But the means by which he's going to accomplish this in full is a horrific thing, you guys. Because here's what happens. If God... Father, Son, Spirit, are going to get us sinners back into the dance. Jesus would have to be kicked out of it. I mean, that is the meaning on the cross of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Trinity at this point is being torn apart so that you and I can be brought in. You getting that? If God is going to draw near to us fully, I mean, we are the Holy of Holies. He lives inside of me. If He is going to be that near, you're going to have to pull away from His Son. And the full wrath of God's anger against man's sin poured out on Him. This is why Jesus can turn to a condemned criminal next to him, right? He's dying on the cross. What a scene. Jesus, because of what he's doing on the cross, can turn, because he's opening the door. The Trinity is extending their arms to sinners. He's there. He can turn to this guy and say, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I'm being kicked out in this moment 
so that you can be welcomed in. That's Christmas. That's where he's going. Bethlehem to Calvary. That's why we celebrate it year after year after year and every day of our lives. And the triune God is extending their hand to you today. Dance with me. Let's get in here. Get onto the floor. Where the music never stops and the partner never leaves. Creator is Redeemer and Rescuer. I encourage you. Wish you a very merry rescue this uh, holiday season. Let's pray. Jesus, you are everything to us. We thank you, God, for coming to save. That you would take it on just the death and all of our sin you would bear or poverty or weakness or shame so that we could have your riches and glory righteousness and the joy of of the Father, the Son, the Spirit would become our abundant joy Jesus we we recognize that Christmas wasn't just um, a moment in history merely. That we remember from a distance today. It is something that by the Spirit you want to work in every heart in this room. Again. Bethlehem, Mary, I'll just anticipate the greater work where Christ with us becomes Christ in us. We thank you. We thank you, King of David. Shoot from the stump of Jesse. Sign child Emmanuel. Creator, Savior, Redeemer, Friend. Your victory is ours. Help us to revel in it by faith and extend the invitation into the dance party to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.